Good morning, Cornerstone. It is good to see you all, and I want to say thank you uh, for giving me the honor and privilege of meeting with you another time, another Lord's Day morning, and opening God's Word. So if you have God's Word before you, uh, please open your Bible to the book of Amos chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there is one under the chair in front of you, and uh, Amos is found kind of towards the middle of your Bible. If you are using one of the church Bibles, you'll find our passage starting on page 766, Um, 766, Amos chapter 4. We're going to bite off a big old section of Amos today. We're going to take on chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 in uh, one sermon. Uh, So, we're going to be a lot of Bible before us today, which I will never apologize for. But uh, I'll go ahead and start us off by reading the first couple of verses and the last couple of verses of this section of Amos. These are two little bracketing sections that I think will help set up uh, the meat which comes in the middle. So if you have your Bible open, Amos chapter 4, beginning at verse 4, I'm going to read verse 4 and 5, and then we're going to skip all the way to the end of chapter 5, read a couple of verses there, and then get to work in this passage. Amos chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. This, dear Cornerstone, is the word of the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord your God. Now skip ahead to chapter 5, verse 25. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kian, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please give us your Holy Spirit today, without without whom we are helpless in understanding this text, or any text for that matter. Speak to us, encourage us, and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears that we might hear what your Spirit is saying to us today, and change us and transform us as we see the glories of Christ written on these pages. For Jesus' sake we ask, amen. About 800 years after the prophet Amos spoke these words to God's people, the Lord Jesus Christ sat down to rest at a well that was located not terribly far from where Amos ministered. There he met a woman coming alone to draw water in the heat of the day. This would have been an unexpected meeting. Jesus was a Jew. The woman was a Samaritan. And Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. The woman was coming alone to draw water. In the heat of the day, 
which likely would have indicated that she was some kind of an outcast even among her own people. Women came in groups to draw water, and they would come in the morning, not in the middle of the day when the Middle Eastern heat would have been at its worst. But this woman may have had no choice. Her lifestyle decisions had made her an outcast. You see, she had been married five times. And the man she was living with then was not her husband. Now, whether these marriages of hers had failed or these men had used her and sent her on her way, we don't know. What we know is that there was sexual brokenness and sin in this woman's life. A string of failed relationships. The man who had her now didn't even care enough about her to marry her. For she was a product to him, a means to an end. But she entered this agreement with him because that's what she knew. Like all of us, this woman's soul had a thirst for love and for acceptance, for security, for a life that satisfies. And the only place that she knew to look for it was in the bed of another man. And she had tried it over and over, and her soul was still thirsty. And then on this day, at this well, which would have been a daily reminder to her of her shame, she met a different kind of man. This man was different than the others in that he wouldn't take from her. He would offer to give something to her. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The people, in Israel, the people of Israel in Amos' day were like the Samaritan woman. They were thirsty for a life of joy and satisfaction and meaning and purpose. And God had promised them all of this and more. He would be their God and they would be His people and they would have a great purpose. They would have His purpose. They would be His representatives to showcase His glory to the nations of the earth. But they were unwilling. They feared what God might ask of them. And they had convinced themselves that the life that they wanted, they could find some other way. One way that didn't involve God's demands. One where they could get a little glory for themselves. The Samaritan woman sought the life that she wanted by obtaining lovers. And Israel sought the life that they wanted by obtaining wealth. They had perverted God's system of justice. They had afflicted the righteous. They had taken bribes. They had ignored the needy. They cheated to get what they had, and they rejected any who would question the means by which they got it. And Israel knew this was wrong. 
and their consciences accused them that this was wrong. And their prophets pled with them that this was wrong. And their circumstances proved to them this was wrong. But they ignored it, all of it. But the conscience is a funny thing. It dies slowly. And so to quiet this conscience of theirs and to silence these prophets of theirs, Israel sought to appease this God of theirs with ritual sacrifices, with meaningless ceremonies. They wanted their own life, not His life. They wanted money and comfort more than they wanted this God, and they wanted this God off their back. But the Lord loved them too much. So, He wouldn't let them go down that path, not without a fight. And He, sought them, he sent them the prophet Amos with the message that we read before us today. Return to the Lord and live. The passage opens with the Lord mocking Israel's ritualistic religion. The passage closes with the Lord addressing the futility of their ritualistic religion. And between these brackets, there are three instructions, which will be the outline of our time together. Number one, turn from your sin, return to your Lord, which we see in verses 6 to 11. Number two, seek the Lord and live, chapter 5, verses 1 to 17. And then finally, Fear God and keep His commandments, which I trust we'll see in verses 18 to 24. So here we have an, a good Old Testament call to repentance, to turn from our sin, to seek the Lord for life, and to keep God's commandments. And that makes this passage relevant for all people at all times, and I trust it will be relevant to all of us. So let's have a look again at verses 4 and 5 of the Lord's call on His people to return to Him. In verse 4 and 5, we read God calling, mocking His people. He says, go ahead and come to Bethel. Go ahead and transgress. Go ahead and come to Gilgal and multiply your transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every single morning. Tithe three times a week. Offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel. The Lord is mocking the futility of their false worship. So when He says, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, He is taunting them. It would be like telling a churchgoer who is not trusting in Christ, go ahead, go to church every day if you want. Sing every hymn in the hymn book. Pay your offering three times every week. None of it is going to work. No ritual, however often performed, is going to clear your conscience of the guilt of your sin. Israel's visits to these temples was to get God off their back, to appease Him as if He were some kind of Greek God, so they'll go away and leave us alone. And the Lord says, it's not going to work. It only makes it worse. You multiply transgressions. Make your great devotion in public. Publish them. 
Make your worship, put it on TikTok, put it on Instagram. It's not going to work. The sacrificial system was given to God's people by God to cover over their sins. The cost of sin, of turning away from God, is death. And God gave them the sacrificial system to show them the cost of sin is death. It was to teach them to express faith in God who would cover their sin, who would cover the penalty of their death by substituting another in their place. It was a way for Israel to express gratitude to God, a thanksgiving to God, a way to praise God for His mercy and for His kindness. But in Amos' day, it had become a hallow ritual just to get God to shut up about sin and to leave them alone so that they could live the life they wanted to live. And in verses 6 to 11, the Lord explains that His covenant curses are coming against His covenant people as a consequence of their action, meaning to draw them to repent of their sin. And we've seen this before in the book of Amos. But it's very explicit in verses 6 to 11. So have a look at verses 6 to 11. The Lord says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and a lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when you were there yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water, and they would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. In your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up in your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me. We've talked about this before in the book of Amos. Amos is a smoke alarm in the middle of the night. It's a warning of God's judgment coming upon God's covenant people if they continue to ignore His loving rebuke. And these judgments that God sends against His people are not an unkindness. It is, they are a kindness, a warning meant to draw them back to Him which is what we see over and over again in verse 6 to 11. And in case you're wondering, in, in verse 6, Amos is mentioning of clean teeth. It's not a reference to good dentistry in Israel in the 8th century B.C. Nothing in their teeth was because they had nothing to eat. There's a shortage of bread. And the Lord explains that He's using these things to cause His people to see that their thirst, the thirst of their souls, was for Him. It was not for the comforts that riches could give them. 
It was for him. And anything they sought other than him would leave them unsatisfied. And so he's saying, return to me. Turn to me. Your thirst is for me. Over and over, the Lord is tugging on his people's hand. And over and over, they dig in their heels. They would not return to him. And because they didn't, we now come to the terrifying verses in 12 and 13. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Amos chapter 4 is instructive. It teaches us that sin is a turning from the Lord. Which is why in verse 6 to 11, you keep hearing God saying, return to me. Sin is what happens when we treasure something other than God, more than God. We turn away from Him and toward the other thing. And the Lord calls us and His people of all time to return so we talk a lot about confession and repentance. Confession and repentance are related, but they're not the same. Confession is an admitting of your sin, an acknowledgement that you have turned away from God. That's confession. A repentance is the process of turning back to Him, of turning away from the thing and turning toward your God. Verse 13 is Amos' reminder to Israel exactly who they're dealing with. So he says, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. When you think about it, sin is the most insane thing created being could do. Those who make light of sin do so because they make light of God. May the Lord be kind to us to never forget who we are dealing with, who it is that we're praising when we sing songs of worship, who it is we're praying to when we pray together. This is the one who formed the mountains. This is the one who created the wind. This is the one who knows the thought of every person alive. He is the Lord, the God of hosts, which means the God of armies. The Lord is his name. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know I'm really glad that you're here. And I want you to listen to what God is saying to you from His Word here in this passage. That like Israel, the circumstances and situations and the frustrations of your life are not simply consequences of cause and effect by unknowable and impersonal forces like karma or something. The situations of your life are meant by your God to draw you to His Son. You see, for as often as you have turned your back on God, God has never turned His back on you. 
He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to the cross to suffer the penalty of your rebellion. And just like the sacrificial system in Israel covered over the sins of God's people, Jesus Christ on the cross takes sin away. He went there in your place for your sin. And God loves you, and through this passage is teaching you to return to Him, to admit what you have done, to confess your need for Jesus, to turn to Him. And when you do, the Lord will meet you with open arms. And every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, will be swallowed up in His mercy. And you will become His, united to Him, granted the righteousness of Christ. God raised Him from the dead on the third day to prove to you that eternal life is yours and all ours for everyone who trusts in Him by faith. Well, as we've seen a couple of times in the book of Amos, God's judgment over His people was because he loved his people. It wasn't because he was mad, like some kind of raging father. He's just ticked off because he didn't get what he wanted. He loves his people, and they're on a path toward destruction, and he's grabbing them with severe mercy to return them to himself. It is a house fire in Israel, and he's trying to wake them up. He's shaking them. And when they wake up, what should they do? Well, if you were in a house fire in the middle of the night and you woke up, what would you do? You would run for safety. You would gather your family and you would run to a safe place, which is actually the subject of chapter 5. So if you will turn with me to chapter 5, verse 1 and 3, we'll do something similar that we did at the beginning. We'll, we'll read the beginning and then we'll read uh, some passages towards the end. So verses 1 to verse 3 and then verses 16 to 17. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Skip down to verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, squares there shall be a wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be a wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. In verses 1 and 2, we witness the true heart of a prophet. The true heart of a prophet is one which not only foretells God's judgment, but also laments. Lamentation is the sound of the grieving heart, of the broken heart. The Bible and church history contains laments. Christians once sang hymns of lament, grieving the effect of their own sin, grieving the effect of sin on their land. But sadly, 
in recent decades, Christians have become so obsessed with overcoming and conquering rather than enduring. And our theology of suffering has become so weak and so thin that we have simply lost the language of lament. And it is the humble opinion of this pastor that we are a poor people for it. I think we do well to return to hymns of lament. Of course, I pray that the Lord would raise up songwriters in our day, even from our own number, to write songs of lament. A true prophet laments. So don't let anyone tell you, I'm just being prophetic as an excuse for a lack of grace and gentleness. That's not being prophetic. That might be being a jerk, but it is not being prophetic. The Lord Jesus Christ issued seven woes against the sins of His people in His day. And He wept over Jerusalem. Same chapter. Same passage. Look it up. If you're following along with us in the one-year Bible reading plan of the book of Jeremiah, you've read just yesterday, I think, the prophet weeping, lamenting over the sin of His people. So repentance, the returning of God's people to the Lord, begins with lament. It begins with a true sorrow over sin. But it doesn't end there. For lament doesn't save anyone. Once you have felt lament and sorrow over sin, then what do you do? What do you do next? Well, Amos tells us, beginning back in verse 4 of chapter 5. Amos 5, 4 to 13. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel. And do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is His name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that the destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate Him who reproves in the gate and they abhor Him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time. For it is an evil time. So Amos points to Israel's sin. Amos warns of God's judgment against Israel's sin. 
And then Amos laments the destruction coming upon Israel for their sin. But Amos is a good prophet, and he's not going to leave them there. He gives them the solution. He points God's people to their only hope, to their God, who will be gracious and forgiving, who will give life to all who freely turn to Him. Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. He's telling Israel, the life that you want cannot be found anywhere but in me. Seek me and live. I am the Lord of life. After all, it was the Lord Jesus Himself who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. John chapter 1, verse 4, in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. Notice how the Lord clearly lays out the futility of seeking any other thing to find life. In verse 5, there's no life in Bethel. There's no life in Gilgal or Beersheba. There's no life in any place where there is pagan worship. Your religion, your rituals cannot save you. They cannot give you life. All of this will come to nothing, God says. But to get the life that you want for seven, Israel, you must turn to me. But instead, what do they do? God says that they turn justice into wormwood. It was a bitter herb. To get the life that they wanted, they perverted justice. Justice, which is a constructive and beneficial thing for any community, a sweetness, as it were, to any community, was perverted in Israel. It had become bitter. Maybe they paid off judges. Maybe they rigged the courts. Either way, they cast righteousness to the earth, meaning they had no respect for doing right before the Lord. And God saw all of it. And again, He doesn't just call them to repentance, He reminds them who they're dealing with. He says the star constellations, He made them. The Lord was the one who hung the stars. He's the one who causes the sun to rise and to fall. The oceans obey His command. In Israel, your plan is to defy Him? And then when He sends someone out of love to reprove you, you reject them, you hate them, you abhor them, you dig in your heels. This is your plan to get the life that you want by defying Him? The Lord sees Israel's futile attempt to get the life that they wanted at the expense of His Word, at the expense of His justice, at the expense of righteousness, at the expense of the poor. Amos says, you, you trample on the poor. You exact unfair taxes from the poor. You afflict those people trying to live the right way. You take bribes, you ignore the needy. In verse 13, 
we read, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Commentators are kind of up in the air as to what this means. The interpretation is a bit difficult. But it seems that Amos is saying that the evil in his day will be so pervasive that anyone who even wished to voice God's wisdom or offer a different perspective on how they should live will be forced to hold their tongue. No one wants to hear anything different than what they believe to be true. There's no appetite for the truth. There's no appetite for contrary opinions. In verses 14 to 15, Amos gives a call to action. Verses 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. Do you hear God pleading with His people? It doesn't have to be this way. Your path is headed for death. I want you to live. Seek good, not evil. Live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil. Love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I wonder if the Apostle Paul had this passage in mind when he wrote to the Romans, saying, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. This, these two verses is how Israel is to right the ship. Seek the Lord, seek good. God will be gracious. The life of comfort that you're looking for cannot be found by perverting justice. It cannot be found by oppressing others and ignoring the needy. You must hate evil and love that which is good and establish justice. But how did the Lord Jesus put it? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is the way of life. This is what will quench the thirst of your soul. To turn from your sins. To return to your Lord. To seek the God who is life. And then finally, to keep God's commandments. This is where we'll end our time together. Verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Verse 21. I hate. I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness 
like an ever-flowing stream. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes searched and searched for the final meaning of life, the ultimate purpose for mankind. And that author concluded, it is this, fear God and keep His commandments. Which is really the same idea we see here in Amos 5. In verses 18 to 20, Amos is wondering why Israel would want the day of the Lord to come. I suppose maybe they thought it would be the day of their vindication. God would judge the surrounding nations. Suppose they thought they had God fooled about the sin in their own life. But Amos says it's not going to be like that. No one's going to escape this. The day of the Lord will come, it'll be like a lion, and you'll run from the lion, and then a bear will meet you. Or you'll be running for your life, and you'll see cover in a house, and you'll put your hand on a wall, and a serpent will bite you. No one escapes this. Remember, Israel believed that they had this Yahweh covered. I mean, this guy likes dead animals, right? Let's give him some dead animals. We'll throw some money at it. It'll be just fine. He'll leave us alone. It's a bit like the people in our day. Trying to appease God. I talked with a guy the other day who said, I don't need to go to church because nature is my church. I'm good with God. God good, God's good with me. Did you ever hear someone say, that I believe if you're a good person and you do your best, that's what matters to God. What do you say to someone like that? Well, there's a lot of things you could say. You could start by agreeing with them. It's true. Every single good person goes to heaven. Every single one of them. Trouble is, that person doesn't exist. What is good? And who gets to determine what is a good person? After all, it was Jesus himself who said, There is no one good except God alone. But that's not really the point here. Israel thought that they had. God covered because they kept up their rituals and their ceremonies. They thought that as long as I observe this ritual, then God will leave me alone. Which I think is a good place for us to do a little self-reflection. I wonder if that same sentiment resides in your heart. Why do you keep God's commandments? Is it to draw closer to the Lord or is it so that he'll stay away? Israel had kept their festivals not because they loved God, not because they wanted to see him glorified, but because they wanted him to shut up. He, they were afraid of what he might ask of them. Their hearts weren't in it. 
Jesus told us the reason we should keep God's commandments, didn't he? Gospel of John, chapter 14. If you love me, keep my commandments. We keep God's commandments because we love him. A husband is faithful to his wife because he loves her. If he's faithful to his wife because he's afraid that she'll divorce him, take the dog and the cat and the kids and the house, well, is he, is he really faithful to her? She's smart enough. She'll recognize it, won't she? His faithfulness won't last very long. But a husband who loves his wife and wants nothing more than to honor her and to see her flourish and spiritually nourished, faithfulness to him, it's, it's easy. She's what I want. Why would I want anything else? If you love me, keep my commandments. Keeping the commandments of God is not so that God would love us. Keeping the commandments of God is because He already does love us. And His love for us has ignited a love in us that expresses itself in keeping commandments. So obeying commandments is simply an overflow of a heart in love with its creator and sustainer. Obedience is not a duty for the Christian. It is a delight for the Christian. Jesus is what is most precious to us. And so keeping his commandments, in a sense, it's easy. You see, it's possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons. And those right things become sin. The Lord tells Israel what he thinks of their love-less relationship-less religion. He says, I hate it. I, I despise it. I hate your songs. You've perverted justice. You've oppressed the poor. You've sold your brother for a new pair of shoes. And you think that you can just cut up a cow and I'm going to be good? May the Lord gr graciously spare us of falling into a ritualistic religion like we read about here. Here the Lord tells His people what to do. Verse 24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Here we learn something very significant about the subject of justice. It rolls down. Right living, meaning keeping God's commandments, loving neighbor, is like a stream. It flows downhill. We discussed this in week one of Amos. Justice means giving some, someone something they deserve. It means giving someone what they deserve. And here we learn that justice rolls down, which means that our definition of justice and how we work out justice in our day must start at the top with God. So first, 
Justice means giving God what is His due, what He deserves. We will never hope to see justice in our day until we give God what He justly deserves, which is what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Social injustice is caused by theological injustice. Not giving a human being the dignity they deserve is a symptom of not giving God the devotion He deserves. So, let me explain. Every human being was created in the image of God. Genesis 1 and 2. And it is the image of God in human beings which makes human life precious. And the image of God resides in every human being, regardless of their age or their color or their intelligence or their wealth or their contribution to society. And when we don't treasure God above all things, we don't see the image of God in humans as something needing to be protected and honored, something worthy of dignity. Justice flows down. If I see a brother or sister in need and I have a way to help them, but I close my heart against them, it's not primarily because I don't value them. It is primarily because I don't value God who put His image in them and Christ who spilled His blood for their soul. Justice flows down. And so before we ever begin having discussions about Social injustice in our day, we have to start with giving God His due. And when you put God first, and He's locked in, justice rolls down like the stream of a river to those who need it. The passage starts and ends with two sections addressing false worship. And this is because Israel's theological injustice, not giving God the devotion He deserves, is what led Israel to putting something else first, putting themselves first, which meant putting everyone else underneath them getting what they wanted. So the oppression of the poor by the rich in Samaria was a symptom of Israel's idolatry. And so you see Amos' angle at addressing injustice in his day is by calling for theological justice. Seek me and live. Fear God. Keep His commandments. And justice will flow from there. Israel's thirst for life, for the satisfying life that they wanted, for meaning, for purpose, could never be found in wealth, and never be found in the acquisition of things. It could be found only by seeking the Lord. And just like Jesus told that sexually broken woman looking for life at the well, and just like the Lord told Israel in Amos day, and just like the Lord is telling us today, everyone who drinks of that water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water Jesus will give them will never be thirsty again. Cornerstone, come to this well and drink, and be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, You are the Lord of life, the author of life. You are life itself. 
And we confess to you that we have so often sought life in other places. Will you forgive us? Thank you for reminding us that there is no water in this world that will quench the thirst of our souls. Jesus, you are life, the light of men. You are the way and the truth and the life. You are what our soul wants. Will you forgive us for preferring anything to you? Will you forgive us for using religion as a means to keep you at bay, fearing what you might ask of us? Father, may our devotion to you be grounded in our delight to you. Give us a heart that longs to please the Lord and that wants nothing more than to see Christ exalted and his church healthy. Give us to praying often for our people, for our church, for our country, for the mission of God in the earth. And by your power and grace, May we know the pleasures of a life lived with purpose, your purpose, the purpose for which we have been made. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the Lord gives you an assurance of your pardon in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace.